0: invite you to turn in your Bibles to judges chapter seven. We will continue to hear the story of God's work in delivering Israel through Gideon. we come now to chapter seven. Chapter six was the call of Gideon and now in chapter seven we will see how the Lord actually delivers Israel from the Midianites. But before we hear God's word, let us call upon him once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are by our very nature dependent upon you for all things. We have no strength. We have no life. We have no joy, no peace, no hope apart from you. So I pray that as we hear your word once again and meditate upon it, that by your spirit you would reveal, you would show to us our weakness, that we may be driven closer to you, where we will find true, sufficient strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 7. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it, so that it fell, and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp." As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, and from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the wine crest of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, never has a a nation at war surveyed its army and said, do you know what our problem is? Our problem is we just have too many soldiers to win this war. No, to win wars, nations increase their military spending, they make more weapons, and they recruit and conscript more soldiers. And yet, when God looked upon the Israelites who had answered Gideon's call to gather and get ready to fight Midian, God surveyed the army and said to Gideon, Gideon, there's a problem, you have too many soldiers. So we read in verse 2, and this is the key verse. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Even at face value, this assessment is surprising and puzzling. Since when can you have too many soldiers to win a war? And yet, when you understand the context, the surprise and puzzlement only grow. For Gideon, as the story clarifies along the way, begins with 32,000 men, which may seem like a lot for that time, when you remember Barak had led an army of only 10,000 men to defeat Sisera. But what has the author been emphasizing whenever he describes the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East? He has emphasized their number. He compares them to locusts, saying there were too many to even count. He does so again here in chapter 7, saying in verse 12, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance couldn't even count all the camels, let alone all of the soldiers. When you do the math later in chapter 8, you realize that the Midianites had an army of at least 135,000 men. That was massive for that time period. How then can an army of 32,000 be too many to defeat an army of 135,000? And yet the Lord says, the people with you are too many. We often complain about not having enough help. God's complaint is just the opposite here. For God doesn't need any help to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need to use means and secondary causes to fulfill his decree, but it is his good pleasure to use these things. Therefore, we see throughout the Bible that God not only ordains the ends, he ordains the means. This is true in everything, and so it is also true in salvation. We know that salvation belongs to the Lord, but God often chooses to work this salvation through human activity. In other words, God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. However, the point of Judges chapter 7 is that God delights to work through human weakness, not human strength. God always saves through weakness. So if you want to be used by God, you need to recognize not how strong you are. You need to recognize how weak you are. And the only way that you will recognize your weakness is if God graciously reveals it to you. So in light of the theme that God always saves through weakness, I'm going to just first explain the reality of weakness and then offer three blessings of revealed weakness. So first is the reality of weakness, the reality that humans are weak by nature, meaning even Adam and Eve were created in weakness, not in sinfulness, but in weakness, not flawed, but in one sense, frail. Meaning, humanity was never created in such a way that we could be independent and self-sufficient. We were never created with our own strength. It was always a derivative, dependent strength. Our creation necessarily means we lack the strength to sustain our lives, to be a creature is by nature to depend on the Creator for everything. Nothing can live, nothing can even exist apart from God's sustaining power and strength. So the author of Hebrews says of God the Son that He upholds the entire universe by the word of His power. Paul adds in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. We only have our being in God. So to be weak is fundamentally to lack the strength to sustain yourself. Mankind, therefore, has never been self-sufficiently strong. We are weak, we are dependent, we are helpless apart from God. That's who we are by created nature. It's important to understand, therefore, that when the Bible talks about weakness, that is not synonymous with sinfulness, When Paul asks in 2 Corinthians 11, who is weak, and am I not weak? He's not talking about sin. For he later says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, and I am content with weaknesses. Now, if you've read Paul, you know that he never boasts, and he is never content with sin. He hates sin. He despises. He laments. He fights against sin. Sin is never something Paul says, this is great, and I'm just content to be who I am as a sinner. Paul is not content with sinfulness, but he is content with weakness. And so we know these are not the same things. I believe it is unhelpful, therefore, to speak of our sin or to giving into temptation, primarily in terms of weakness. Why did, why did you give into temptation? Well, I'm, I'm just weak. No, that's not the problem. It's not that you're weak. It's that you're sinful. Sin is not the result of natural weakness. It is the result of sinful corruption. For sin and the curse of the fall didn't make us weak. They, in a sense, added a new dimension to our weakness. They stole some of the limited strength we had. So now our bodies, our minds, our wills, our affections, none of these things are now working the way they were supposed to. So sin added to our weakness. It didn't create our weakness. And so in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, you hear Paul talk about weakness in two different ways. In one way, Paul seems to equate weakness with suffering. He says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And all of those things, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, in one sense, are." further explaining what Paul means by weaknesses. Similarly, when he describes all of his sufferings in chapter 11, he asks, who is weak and am I not weak? Again, he sees all of these hardships as part of his weakness. Yet Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So he speaks of boasting in weakness and boasting in what shows his weakness. So I think suffering also should be thought of in one sense as yes, this this intensifies our our weakness. It makes us weaker in one sense, but in another, suffering is actually revealing how weak we really are. It intensifies it to agree that now we actually start to get who we are by nature. We are not self-sufficient. We need help. So we are weak by nature, and suffering intensifies the weakness and makes it more apparent to us. So weakness is natural to man. It is part of created nature. In addition to this, because of the fall, we now have a sinful nature which exacerbates weakness but is not identical to it. Suffering, on the other hand, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, circumstantial, this increases our weakness and thereby reveals it to us. So in one sense, I think of suffering as felt weakness. You're always weak, but when you suffer, now you start to feel it. So it's a human reality which we don't always recognize. And because of our lack of recognition, God will often work to reveal our weakness, to help us see reality more clearly. This is what God is doing with Gideon in Judges chapter 7. He is revealing how weak Gideon and Israel actually are. And though revealed weakness is rarely pleasant, It is always a blessing. So here are three blessings of revealed weakness. Three ways this revelation benefits you. Number one, revealed weakness is a blessing because it protects you from pride. It is protective. Why does God say Gideon has too many men for him to deliver the Midianites into their hands? He gives the answer. He says, the people are too many because if God gave them victory in this way with this many soldiers, they will fail to recognize that it was God who had to save them. And they will start to think, I saved myself. Look how great and marvelous I am. In other words, if God saved them with an army of 32,000, they would experience deliverance from one enemy, but they would become victims to an even greater enemy, because there is no greater enemy than your own sinful pride. The devil couldn't have made Adam and Eve sin, didn't have that power. All he could do was attempt to awaken pride and let pride deal the deadly blow. You should keep seeing throughout Judges that the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, all of the other ites were never Israel's greatest enemy. Israel's sin was always their greatest enemy. Just as your sin is your greatest enemy and the general of your sin is, is called pride. Your pride is what leads the rebellion in your heart. And when you follow that general, you become an enemy of God, for the Bible is clear. God opposes the proud. Pride opposes God. God, therefore, opposes the proud. So God goes to war with Israel's greater enemy before he leads them into battle against the Midianites, who was their lesser enemy. The real battle is not against the Midianites. It is the sin against the sin that would take even God's miraculous salvation and turn it on its head to trumpet, I am amazing. So God slowly reveals Gideon's and Israel's weakness by diminishing his army to save them from the deadly pride before he's going to save them from Midianites. If God doesn't go through this diminishing winnowing process then to do what happens in the second part of chapter 7 doesn't actually benefit Israel it is going to confirm them in their idolatry and they will be worse off than they were during those 7 years of fear and oppression and so we praise God for killing our pride before he de- delivers us from anything else see it doesn't just matter that God saves you it matters how he saves you. So God shrinks the army. Now, don't overthink or over-spiritualize the process for shrinking the army. This is not a process to make the army more effective with the right kind of soldiers. It's simply to make the army smaller so that nobody boasts. It's not about having the best soldiers. It's just about having less soldiers. So God first says, everyone who is afraid, you get to go home. This is when I would have exited the story in Judges chapter 7. All right, all you scaredy cats, you go home. All right, take my bag. Good luck, guys. This is just following Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, though. In the laws for warfare... It says, And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. Now, is, is God trying to protect the army from fearful people who will spread fear? Maybe, but it's really clear that even after this process, Gideon is still there and Gideon is still afraid. How do we know that Gideon is still afraid? because God says to him that night, if you are afraid, go with Pura and go and listen to what you're going to hear in the camp. And what does Gideon do? He goes down, which means, yep, I'm still afraid, so I'm going to go and see what God has for me. So this is not just about getting rid-, rid of all the people who are afraid, because then Gideon would have to have leave the story here at this point. So, God has now shrunk the army from 32,000 to 10,000. So, now the army is the same size it was when Barak led Israel against Sisera. So, you might think God's going to be happy to use 10,000 because he used 10,000 before. But, verse 4, God says, the people are still too many. Gideon's probably thinking at this point, you've got to be kidding me. Still too many. We just got rid of 22,000. I only have 10,000 left. So God tells Gideon to take the men down to the water and have them drink, and he will now divide the remaining 10,000 into two groups. One group will consist of those who kind of squat down, scoop up the water with their hands, and lap it like a dog. The other group consists of those who just kneel and put their mouths straight in the water and start drinking. So, this divides the army yet again, and you have 300 dog lappers and 9,700 kneelers. And again, don't overthink this. It amazed me how much scholarship went into why God chose the 300 dog lappers. He may have had a reason. He doesn't tell us, but this is not some great spiritual test that these these 300 dog lappers are now going to be really fit to fight because remember, they're not going to fight when we get to the actual war, they don't kill any Midianites. They just blow on trumpets and scream really loud. So you don't need them to be really attentive, alert soldiers They just drink funny. That's all it is. So now Gideon is probably closing his eyes, crossing his fingers, saying, please let God choose the kneelers and send the dog lappers home. But nope, God wants the 300 dog lappers. Now the army is at 300, and this more accurately reflects the reality of human weakness. 300 against 135,000 more clearly shows how helpless and dependent Israel was than 32,000 against 135,000 would have shown. Even the most proud of them could not have concluded, yep, 300 of us were sufficient to beat 135,000. So God reveals their weakness to protect them from their pride, for if we do not see our weakness, we will foolishly begin to think, I am strong, I am self-sufficient, I can handle this on my own. And when you start to think that, you are dead in the water. When we exalt ourselves and depend upon ourselves, we become enemies of God and we are cut off from the source and sustainer of life." So I believe revealed weakness is a protective mercy, even though it feels unpleasant. So Paul even says that God gave him the thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. Conceit was more dangerous to Paul than a spiritual thorn, which was probably some kind of physical suffering. God protects his people by revealing their weakness, and the main enemy he protects them from is their own pride. So, brothers and sisters, you have to understand that when God orchestrates events in such a way that you start to see how weak and helpless you are, he is lovingly protecting you. Lord, we pray that little Benjamin would be okay and that that would not hurt too much. In all of these ways, the Lord is shielding us from ourselves and from the lies that we would begin to believe. Because God saves through weakness so that even his salvation doesn't become a temptation towards damnation. We need to know that salvation belongs to the Lord and not to us. He therefore cannot lift us high until he has brought us low. But second, we see that revealed weakness delivers from fear. It protects from pride. It delivers from fear. Now, I'll explain with the third blessing Why revealed weakness delivers from fear. But for now, I just want you to see that that was the effect in Gideon. I talked a lot last week about Gideon's fear. The Lord came to him, remember, as he was beating out wheat in a wine press because he was scared of the Midianites. Remember, Gideon asks for multiple signs along the way so that he can be assured of God's presence and voice. And when he obeyed God to tear down Baal's altar, he obeyed at night because he was afraid of his family and the town. And though he was now even clothed with the Spirit of God, he was apparently still quivering with fear as he snuck down to the Midianite camp to hear God's reassuring message. And since he is still afraid when he goes down to the Midianite camp, it's clear that God's process of revealing his weakness and winnowing down his army didn't alleviate his fear at first. Quite possibly, perhaps even likely, God's weakness-revealing, pride killing process actually intensified Gideon's fear at first. For felt fear is often an immediate effect of felt weakness, but it's not the final effect. For once Gideon leaves the Midianite camp, he is strengthened and now he's finally ready to command. So he confidently instructs his meager troops. He leads them in a battle cry. And so now in the rest of the story, you, you see a different Gideon. He's in command. He's bold. He's confident. As we'll see when we get to chapter eight, this is not all good, but at the very least, Gideon has finally been delivered from his soul, paralyzing fear. So it seems, though, that revealed weakness immediately intensifies fear, but if you follow it to its intended end, the end will be alleviated fear. But what do I mean by if revealed weakness is followed to its intended end? I mean that revealed weakness is first intended to help you see yourself more clearly. This is actually why the immediate effect is often intensified fear. Because if you more clearly and accurately see your helpless insufficiency, then the world will look even more dangerous and frightening than it did before. In other words, as you see how small you really are, everything else begins to look bigger. Just like the Canaanites appeared at first to the eyes of those trembling spies. And this will make your fear grow. But the sight of your smallness is only meant by God to be your first sight. It's the first thing you see, but it's not the last thing you see. And so your eyes must keep moving to settle upon something else. And when they do, then the initial rise in fear will settle down into comforted fear. For revealed weakness delivers from fear as it empowers by grace. And this is the third and last blessing of revealed weakness. Revealed weakness delivers from fear because revealed weakness empowers by grace. How? By graciously leading you to behold and embrace the power of, of God. When God reveals our weakness, his aim is not merely to show us how small we are. He wants to show us how big he is. He reveals our weakness in order to reveal his strength, which he is graciously offering to give us. So God saves through weakness to prove that he is the almighty and he is the only one who can save you. As he kills our pride, he not only leads us away from trusting and depending upon ourselves, he leads us to trust and depend upon him. When Gideon's army is at 32,000 strong, he may have foolishly still been tempted to think, all right, I can take it from here. God brought me to this point. I've got enough to go the rest of the way. He may have been tempted to forget the promise that mattered most that we talked about last week, which was God's promise, I will be with you. And he may have now started to find comfort in the fact he had 32,000 soldiers with him. But by reducing the army to 300, God gives Gideon no choice but to now trust in him. See, God is the most gracious to us when he forces our stubborn, sinful, and susceptible hearts to hope in him. Because if he leaves us any other choice, we're going to take that other choice. And so, of course, this means we must suffer loss, which is unpleasant. But the only salvation possible is the salvation that comes through God's power. So God again saves Israel in a way that proves he's the only one who can save. So first he sends Gideon to the Midianite camp to hear a message. And the message comes in the form of a dream that one of the Midianite soldiers has had. And he basically dreams of a big ball of bread that rolls through the camp and flattens a tent. You might think, well, that doesn't seem all that important. And yet this dream is the first evidence of God's miraculous salvation. This is a Midianite Pagan idolater who now has a dream from God. But the second evidence that this is God's miraculous salvation is that the guy the the first soldier tells his dream to seems to understand exactly what this dream means. The third evidence of God's miraculous salvation is that this second Midianite soldier believes this weird dream of a ball of bread flattening a tent means Gideon is going to defeat Midian. Now, how does he even know about Gideon? He seems to even know the name of Gideon's dad. And you remember that Gideon says, I'm I'm a nobody from Nowhere, and yet this soldier knows who Gideon is. And why would he think that these helpless Israelites who are vastly outnumbered and who have been hiding in caves for seven years can all of a sudden defeat Midian? And consider the irony of the soldier's statement. He refers to this bread as the sword of Gideon. And we all know no one in Gideon's army even has a sword. Many knights have lots of sword, but Gideon, all they have is trumpets and torches in jars, which is not usually very effective for winning a battle. But the fourth evidence of God's miraculous salvation is that Gideon comes to the camp in the exact place and at the exact moment that these two soldiers out of 135,000 in a camp that is huge and even has tons of camels are having this conversation. And Gideon, I think, finally gets it, that only a sovereign God who governs every speck of dust on the earth could orchestrate events in this way for him to come to that point at that time and hear that conversation. Gideon now understands that God is the Almighty. Gideon is decreasing, God is increasing, and when that happens, fear dies and power grows because it leads us to finally reject ourselves and receive God. It rejects the lie, I can and will save myself, and now receives the truth, only God can and will save me. For there is only one power that can overcome all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our enemies, and that is the power of God. And that is God. what God must teach us in order to save us. It's what Gideon learned as he heard the dream and interpretation. It's what Joshua learned when he stood before the commander of the Lord's army. who told him, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And this is what Paul learned when God graciously refused to take away the thorn in his flesh. For the Lord told him instead, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. His power isn't perfected in the sense that our weakness somehow amplifies God's power. It doesn't make it more than it is. But our weakness magnifies God's power. It shows, more accurately, its immeasurable magnitude. And this is why Paul learns to boast in his weaknesses and in whatever hardship shows him his weakness. Because it shows him God's power and it forces him to rely upon it. We would rely upon anything else if we could. We'd rely on our jobs, our families, our finances, our physical abilities, our intelligence, our reputations. If God left anything, we would trust in that. Paul boasts in his weaknesses. He says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Why? Because when we are weak, we are finally relying on the only true strength there is, and that is God's. Embracing our weakness is embracing God's strength. So God saved Gideon in a miraculous way through weakness. Because these 300 men simply went and surrounded the camp of 135 soldiers with nothing but trumpets and torches in jars. The torches were in jars so that the Midianites didn't see them coming. And then all they do is blow the trumpets, smash the jars, hold up the the torches, and they just stand there. They had no weapons. They did not strike down any of the Midianites. All they did was rely on God's power, and he struck down 120,000 Midianites with their own swords. For the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. See, kids, even you at this young age need to read these stories and remember how powerful your God is to save you. You need to remember that he's the only power that can save you. If you have God's grace, then you have all you need. For His grace is sufficient, and His grace is for you, if you will but turn to Him by faith. But that means you have to see your weakness. For God only saves through weakness. And the greatest example of this truth is not found in Judges chapter 7. The greatest example of this is found in God sending His Son to take on human flesh. Never has there before been a greater display of what it means for God's power to be perfected in weakness than when God the Son united Himself to human flesh. That is power perfected in human weakness. For the sovereign came to earth as a servant. The king and sustainer of the universe cried as he laid as a baby in a feeding trough. And then this son of God went to die on a cross, rejected and despised. As Paul says, he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. See, in one sense, God gave you a weak savior, which in this way is how he gave you unlimited power, because his power is only perfected in weakness. The incarnate and crucified Christ is God's power made perfect in weakness, and it is the proof that his grace really is sufficient. And he is yours if you would have him by faith. So again, I ask you, will you receive him by faith? I was struck the other day. I saw just a a really short clip, an interview with with Tim Keller, just a little bit before he died. And someone was asking him, what would you say to a young Christian who's just really afraid of the future? He said, what I would say to him is what, Kathy, his, his wife, and I have just been saying to each other over and over again that if Jesus really is raised from the dead, it's all going to be okay. <laughs> I don't know how it's all going to be okay, but if Jesus is really raised from the dead, and he is, it's got to be all okay. <laughs> because he's not only going to raise all of us, he's going to resurrect the whole world in a sense. So will you stop trusting in yourself and trust in this crucified and resurrected Son of God who is crucified in weakness but lives in the power of God? Will you rejoice at the sight of your weakness and run into the embrace of God's power? For your weakness is real. It just needs to be revealed so you can see it. And when God graciously yet painfully does reveal it, Remember that he is loving you by protecting you from your pride, delivering you from your fear, and empowering you by his grace. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that even as we are reminded each and every day through various trials and hardships that we are weak, We thank you that your son not only took on our flesh to die on the cross, but he was raised again from the dead. And if he's raised from the dead, we know it's all going to be okay. So would you help us to not trust in ourselves, but to keep trusting in you. To know that you are our God, you are the almighty God, and you are for us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.